I want to call your attention now to the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 30. Before we read, let me introduce the text in this way. This is a passage of scripture that I come to again and again and again in my own mind. And we look at it together today, certainly not for the first time, and I hope not for the last time, because it's too good to neglect. I hope that it will encourage you as it has me, meditating upon it recently. We'll begin reading at verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 30. And it came to pass when David and his men were come to Ziklag on the third day that the Amalekites had invaded the south and Ziklag and smitten Ziklag and burned it with fire and had taken the women captives that were therein. They slew not any, either great or small, but carried them away and went on their way. So David and his men came to the city, and behold, it was burned with fire. And their wives and their sons and their daughters were taken captives. Then David and the people that were with him lifted up their voice and wept, until they had no more power to weep. And David's two wives were taken captives, Ahinoam the Jezreelitess and Abigail the wife of Nabal the Carmelite. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved. Every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. May God bless the reading of his word to our hearts today. The life of David is a life of ups and downs. And the portion that we have read here is undoubtedly one of the lowest downs in his life. He had been running for his life from King Saul and his army. Though David had done nothing to deserve it, and David was, uh, had no fault of his own in this, the evil heart of Saul, his jealousy raged against David and he hunted him like an animal upon the mountains. David here in the context had found refuge with the neighboring Philistines who were in fact arch enemies of Israel but he felt safer there with the Philistines than in Israel. We do not commend David in that flight to the land of the Philistines. 
seems to have been a mistake. At any rate, he was living in this city or town of Ziklag, and it was a very fragile existence for the 16 months that he was there in Ziklag. He had offered the Philistine king Achish the help of his 600 men in a battle against the army of Saul and Israel. And if you're familiar with the story, you know the details of how it worked out. But the Philistines refused David's help and sent him back to Ziklag, which was about 60 miles away. They marched for about three days to get back home to Ziklag. And you can imagine the sense of relief having not had to fight in that battle after all and the anticipation of arriving at home being greeted by wife or in David's case wives and children ready to rest and relax from three days march ready to enjoy a good home-cooked meal. And instead, what do they find? As they arrive at Ziklag, they find ashes. Nothing but ashes. No people. Somehow they came to know that all of the people had been taken prisoner by the Amalekites. The Amalekites had a score to settle with David because of what he had done to them, uh, at least in their thinking, back in an earlier event. So you can imagine the grief and the, the, the horror in the minds of David and his 600 men what has become of our wife and children? They didn't know at this point if they were still alive. Were they tortured? Have they been burned alive? And the grief was unbearable. They wept, and they wept greatly, and they wept in a way that left them utterly exhausted and spent so that they couldn't weep anymore. And the, the shock that had turned to grief now turned to anger and rage against David. These 600 men, perhaps even more by this time, they blamed it all on David. This is David's fault, they thought, and obviously began to say to one another. They begin to speak, it says in verse 6, of stoning David. If David hadn't, then this wouldn't have happened. And 
And in a sense, it was David's fault in that it was his lack of faith to go and hide in the land of the Philistines and even to offer them his help and the help of his men. But stoning David would not be a solution in any way at this time. It would not ease the the grief and pain of the loss of their uh, families. And it says that David was greatly distressed there at the beginning of verse 6. You can just imagine how great the distress was. This term greatly distressed speaks of being in a bind, being under pressure in a very narrow spot. We might say like a vice that is tightening in upon David. One writer said David hit rock bottom, literally. Think about that. These men are picking up rocks getting ready to stone David, or at least they're talking about it. They're making some plans on it. David hit rock bottom, literally. Greatly distressed, discouraged as a man can be. The fact that it says he encouraged himself in the Lord his God tells us that at this point he was a discouraged man. He was surrounded by enemies. Think of all the enemies around him. There was, of course, Saul in the army of Israel that had been against him for a long time now. Now the Philistines had effectively turned against him. They weren't his friends. Certainly this uh, tribe or this, this uh, group called the Amalekites uh, were against him. And now even his own men were against him. David literally did not have a friend on earth. Before this time, he always had someone that he could turn to, someone he could lean on. He had Jonathan in earlier days, but Jonathan is far removed. Jonathan can't help him now. He had perhaps comfort in his family. Now they're all gone. At least before, when he was threatened by Saul's army, he had his 600 faithful, loyal men who would protect him with their lives. And now they've turned against him, and they're talking about taking his life David was utterly alone. I say he did not have a friend on earth. His life is in jeopardy, even more so. He's as good as dead. There's no place to go, no place to hide. These are very discouraging circumstances for David. Like David... 
we sometimes hit rock bottom. Hopefully not literally, but you never know. We hit rock bottom figuratively. We have enemies surrounding us of all sizes and shapes and all sources. The world as a whole is so defiant against God and against all that is godly and against all who are godly. The world is indeed in our generation going to hell in the proverbial hand basket. Going willingly. And those who know Christ are targeted by this wicked world and are unjustly blamed for all the evils in it. Little do they know that Christianity is the goose that laid the golden egg. And if they, or in as much as they destroy Christianity, they destroy their own happiness. But they don't see it that way. We live in a world that has normalized every abomination that the mind can think of. We've normalized the murder of the babies in the womb. We've normalized that these things that God speaks of in his word with the most loathsome and, and detestable and sickening of terms. As if the sodomite sin were not enough. If, when, about the time you think there's no further level to which sin can go, you have this so-called transgender phenomenon and all of the utter confusion. And it's a favor to call it confusion. It is absolute wickedness and defiance of God. And sometimes we who are Christians feel very lonely in this world. And we sense the loss of freedoms. And what freedoms we still have are under threat and we think could be lost very easily and very quickly. It's almost as if everyone who's paying attention to what's going on is holding their breath, waiting for some big further development of evil beyond even what we have presently uh, experienced. And that doesn't even mention personal difficulties, tribulations, for some, it's at home, in the family. For some, it's at work. 
Hopefully it's not at church, thank the Lord. In times like these, when we hit rock bottom, we need the faithful support of brothers and sisters in Christ. We need encouragement. We need friends in the most spiritual sense. And thank God for it. But, you know, some of these troubles that come to us, no one else can know, no one else can understand, maybe no one else can sympathize with. In some ways, you may feel like there's no one that you can turn to, no one that you can count on, no one who can encourage you. So, if you are greatly distressed today and discouraged, understand this. Discouragement is one of the most powerful tools in Satan's arsenal. He accomplishes with discouragement what no other weapon can accomplish. When we're discouraged, he brings us from a run to a walk and from a walk to a crawl and from a crawl to just sitting still. Discouragement keeps us from boldness in our witness, courage in serving the Lord. It leaves us demoralized and lethargic. It leaves us void of the hope that normally would gain the attention of the world and gain a hearing for the gospel. A discouraged Christian is a terrible, terrible advertisement for the gospel. And discouragement is contagious. It spreads like the plague that it is. And, beloved, it must be resisted and it must be overcome. And we want to see how David resisted it and overcame it here. And in a way, you wish that there were more detail given and more insight into the mind and thoughts of David. Maybe we get that in the book of Psalms, after all, in some places. But here it is simply stated in these brief words, but David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. David found a remedy for discouragement here. In the ashes of Ziklag, he encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Though he didn't have a friend on earth, he had a friend in heaven. And to have a friend in heaven is better than having a whole world of friends on earth. Let me point out just in passing here what David did not do. He did not give up in despair. He didn't wallow in self-pity. He didn't say, I don't deserve this. He didn't grow bitter against 
God. He didn't point the finger of blame back at the 600 and say, it's really your fault. He didn't even pick up stones to defend himself. That wouldn't have availed anything, would it? 600 against one. Well, he had faced Goliath. But uh, he didn't even verbally defend himself. He didn't get into a debate with these these grieving men, so grieved that they had become irrational. This was a spiritual battle, and David fought it spiritually. One more thing he didn't do. He didn't just divert his attention and find some distraction to take his mind off of the problems at hand. He faced the problem squarely and dealt with it, and dealt with it in, a, in the most spiritual way. He encouraged himself in the Lord his God. Now let me just point out that every term here is of great significance. First, he encouraged himself. He strengthened himself. This is a reflexive term in the Hebrew language. It means that he was the giver and the receiver of the action. He encouraged himself. There was no one else to encourage him. They were all gone, or they had all turned against him. They're too far away. So he had to encourage himself. When you sense that you are all alone... Discipline your mind like David to encourage yourself in the Lord. The fact is, sometimes we have to do it. Sometimes no one else can. And we must learn to do this. We must discipline our thoughts. Guide our thoughts. Stay in the word of God. Think biblically. One way to put it is to talk to yourself as the psalmist does in Psalm 42 when he says, Why art thou cast down, O my soul? He's talking to himself. He's, he's rationally and in a sound and sane way of thinking, looking at the situation, looking at the problem. Why am I discouraged? Why art thou cast down, O my soul? And why art thou disquieted in me? Identify the cause. And then whatever the cause is, identify the solution. And in that psalm, though it's stated in different terms, it comes down to the same thing as our text. Hope thou in God. For I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. And did I mention that David did not set about to try to encourage these 600 men. He, he was in no condition to encourage them. It would have just been an exercise of hypocrisy and uh, playing a charade. He had to encourage himself first before he could encourage anyone else. And it says that he encouraged himself in the Lord. 
he did not encourage himself in himself. He didn't try to pull himself up by his own boots. He did not encourage himself in anything else or in anyone else but God. You know, there's all kinds of methods of encouragement that unbelievers use. That a believer ought to reject and go for the Lord. Solid comfort that endures, encouragement that lasts, is found in the Lord. And Lord here is all capitals. It's the word Jehovah. It speaks of his I amness, his eternal self-existence, his presence everywhere all the time, his knowing all things, his eternity, his independence. This is all encapsulated in the name Jehovah. Circumstances change, but he is constant. He is always eternally existing in himself. He's the I am. David encouraged himself in the Lord. We must make sure that our encouragement is in the Lord, that it comes from God, that it is in him and not in ourselves. It's not a self-help program, but it's in the Lord. Sooner or later, all other sources of encouragement will fail us. And our encouragement must be in the Lord. Now, notice the last words here, his God. His God. The term God here is literally the word judge. Jehovah, his judge, the one who has the final say. This speaks of his absolute sovereignty, his control over all things. And if you've never noticed this little word his before, then please notice it now. David encouraged himself in the Lord, his God. This little possessive pronoun is a huge word in this passage and in many passages of Holy Scripture. Oh, what a difference it makes. It does not say David encouraged himself in the Lord God. In an abstract sense. It does not say that David encouraged himself in the Lord, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. David needed to know the Lord himself as his God. It's not enough that he's someone else's God. That someone else trusts in him or has trusted in him. Personal comfort is found only in a personal knowledge of God. Knowing him as your God. This little pronoun indicates possession. The possession that describes a, a close personal relationship 
what we would call ownership. It's a possessive pronoun. God belonged to David, and David belonged to God. There was a solemn commitment on the part of God to David. A covenant bond that God himself had made with David so that God could be called the God of David. David's God. In the words of the Song of Solomon, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. And you think that at this time, David didn't own anything. He didn't own a house. It had been burned. As far as he knew at this point, he didn't own a family. They're all probably dead. He didn't own an army because they'd all turned against him. He owned one thing. God. And God owned him. God was all that David had. Sometimes we realize that God is all that we have. But what more do we need? Jehovah is my God. He has voluntarily obligated himself to me. He has voluntarily entered into covenant commitments with me and he's faithful to his word no doubt this is what was going through the mind of david christian friend when you're discouraged remember that god is yours that he has made solemn a solemn commitment to you by his grace if you are a believer in christ he is your god and According to Romans chapter 8, he is for you. If God be for us, who can be against us? He's faithful to his word. He cannot fail. He is not against you. He's for you. He's obligated himself to you. His power and wisdom and goodness he has brought together to converge in your favor. We need to remember this in times of discouragement. No doubt David remembered the promise that had been made to him at the time of Samuel's anointing some years earlier. That meant that David was, by God's uh, decree, ordained to be king over Israel. Therefore, it was simply impossible that these men should stone him to death here on this day. God had made that determination. David could say, God has determined that I shall be king And I know that he will deliver me out of this low spot, this narrow, cramped, uh, distressing spot. Christian friend, when you're discouraged, remember the promises of God to you. The promises of a God who cannot lie. 
some of our favorite ones in times like these are the promise of Romans 8.28. We know. Not just we speculate. No, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Another marvelous promise that, that we rehearse in our minds in times of discouragement. We must train our minds to think on these things continually, but especially in time of discouragement is Hebrews thirteen five. I will never leave you or forsake you. God is always there. That verse in Deuteronomy, we take as a promise to God's people generally, the eternal God is thy refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. God's everlasting arms are underneath. And as my dear mother says, that means you never hit rock bottom. God's arms are always under you. By God's grace, we more than conquer every enemy. He has included us in his purpose of grace, and therefore we must prevail over our enemies and our obstacles. How that prevailing works out in detail is God's business. If we die as martyrs, as many of our forefathers have, that's not a defeat. That is a marvelous and beautiful way of overcoming. We must measure God's love by his promises and not by outward providences. Let me make a couple of other suggestions here as to what David was thinking. No doubt he considered past mercies. We see him actually doing that in earlier scenes of, of difficulty. A lion comes while David's a shepherd and threatens the sheep and David kills the lion with his own hands. A bear comes. Same thing, David kills the bear. So when he's going out to face Goliath, he says, you know, the Lord delivered that lion and he delivered that bear into my hands and he'll deliver Goliath into my hands also. God has seen me through each difficulty thus far. And of course, then there's the whole challenge with Saul. God saw him through all of that. Christian friend, when you're discouraged, look back over your life. See how God has led you thus far, the victories he has given you thus far, the way his providence has intervened and overruled in surprising ways and oftentimes last-minute ways thus far. We have such short memories. We need to refresh the memory of God's past mercies he has never abandoned you, and, and his past mercies ought to encourage you in present distresses. Another thing, no doubt David considered examples before him. We suppose that he was familiar with the story of Job, who comes before David, uh, long before David, chronologically. What do we learn from Job and what did David learn from Job? God is testing me. 
He is proving my faith. There may be challenges going on behind the scenes, as in the case of Job, that David could not see at this moment. And so it is with us. When you're discouraged, remember the repeated teaching of Scripture. And I have a list here of, I think, seven or eight passages, and we don't have time to look at any of them. But Old Testament, Psalms, Proverbs, New Testament, Romans, James, 1 Peter, Revelation. We see that God brings trials into our life to prove, to test, to put to the test our faith in him. And we must prove our faith true and not counterfeit by faithfulness to him who is faithful always faithful to his people we must determine that with his grace we will pass the test you know job puts it this way when he hath tried me i shall come forth as gold he says i'm in this furnace i'm in this crucible god is burning off the dross and the trash and i will be more pure gold in his sight after this I believe that whatever repenting David needed to do, he did right here. He found a pardoning and gracious God. Whatever trouble was of his own making, he repented of. And you know, this is a comforting thought. Even if your trouble is of your own making, still trust in God and draw near to him. Knowing that he works through even our mistakes. He simply refuses to abandon the work that he has started, regardless of our mistakes. Well, there's a couple of other things that we need to see here very quickly. We paused reading at verse 6, but notice the, the action of verse 7. David said to Abiathar the priest, Ahimelech's son, I pray thee, bring me hither the ephod. And Abiathar brought thither the ephod to David. This was a priestly garment that the priest wore in his official uh, capacities. David came to the priest appointed by God. And David prayed. According to verse 8, David inquired at the Lord, saying, Shall I pursue after this troop? Shall I overtake them? I can't help but see Christ as our priest, illustrated here by Abiathar. In our times of distress, we repent of our sins, whatever they may be. We draw near to God. We remember that he is our God, that we are in a special saving relationship with him. He has made us objects of his grace, and he has committed himself to see us through whatever comes or goes in this earth into his heavenly glory. And so we come to Christ, our priest, and we pray through him, and we seek God's will, God's direction, God's guidance, God's wisdom. Let us see the application here. Discouraged soul, 
Keep praying. Keep coming to God through Christ, your great high priest. And then finally God wrought this most amazing thing. God answered David, Pursue, verse 8, for thou shalt surely overtake them and without fail recover all. And that's exactly what happened. As, as David and his men followed God's instructions, they came and found the Amalekites, found all of their missing family members. And it says in verse 18, David recovered all that the Amalekites had carried away. And David rescued his two wives. And there was nothing lacking to them, neither small nor great, neither sons nor daughters, neither spoil nor anything that they had taken to them. David recovered all. Oh, what a happy ending here. I read earlier from Psalm 18, David's testimony on occasions like this in my distress I called upon the Lord and cried unto my God there it is again my God he heard my voice out of his temple what we learn from this is that in God's own way in the way that pleases him most he will see his people through he always has And always will. And your case and mine is no exception. So as we draw to a conclusion here, I want to give you some very precious words from Mr. Spurgeon in a sermon on this text. He said this, The worst days I have ever had have turned out to be my best days. Who but God could do that? For Mr. Spurgeon, for David, and for you and me. But he goes on to say, when God has seemed most cruel to me, he has then been most kind. When God means to bless us, he often takes away a part of the little strength we thought we had. Our God does not fill till he has emptied. Well, David here in our text was about as empty as a man could be, and God filled that emptiness. And when God empties you, look for his filling. Look for his strength. And it is... It is amazing. I can add my testimony to that of Mr. Spurgeon, and I hope that every believer here can do the same. The worst days God has turned into the best days. He's able to do that, and he does do that. Let me just say a couple of closing words here. Whenever you can, encourage others in the Lord their God. And if there's no one to encourage you, encourage yourself.
in the Lord your God. Now, this has been a message for believers, but I want to say just a word here to those who are not believers. I cannot tell you to encourage yourself in the Lord your God if He's not your God. If He's not the one that you bow to and confess and acknowledge and trust in and love and serve and walk with. If you don't know the Lord as your God, then you cannot encourage yourself like David did. Because the harsh reality is outside of Christ and outside of salvation through Christ, God is against you. And all things are not working for your good, they're working for your trouble. And instead of the promise, I will never leave you, the promise is, I will leave you. And I will say to you, depart from me. I never knew you. I tell you, there is no real encouragement that I can give you today if you're not in Christ. And so I urge you to get into Christ by trusting in Him. Outside of Him, there's no hope, there's no comfort, there's only doom and destruction. But by trusting in Him, you come into this covenant relationship in which God is your God. Christ is your Christ. He's your Savior, your Lord. And so, what more can I say? Turn from your sin and come to Him and discover this great encouragement. Heavenly Father, encourage your people from your word. Thank you for the encouragement that this passage gives us. Help us to learn what David learned. And Father, we pray for those who cannot say that you are their God. We pray that that, that might change. And that you would turn their hearts and bring them to yourself. Grant in abundant measure repentance and faith this day. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you as our God. Knowing that you claim us as your people, your children. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.